terror that swept America is here. The Shining, a film by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, now playing in the West End and Sunday all over London. The Shining. Hello and welcome to Horror Call Trash Over the Show. It discusses all the masterpieces and trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And although last week we brought to you a film about uh, sex slugs and sex zombies, this week we bring you a film with a lot of dick. Dick oh, Callahan. Jesus Christ. Yes, his name's Dick. Can yes. we get over it? No, 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 still got a whole episode to go. Okay. Uh, possibly a very long episode. We are talking about Stanley Kubrick's cinematic masterpiece, The Shining, a film where every single second of it is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it's a perfect horror film. That's a perfect film. Perfect film, but it's a horror film. It is. And it's a perfect one. Released in 1980, directed by Stanley Kubrick, adapted from a, a novel by Stephen King. It was made on a budget of 19 million and grossed just over 46 million at the box office. That it was a success, but not a. Uh, that's a worldwide box yeah, office. Yeah, that's that's not a runaway success. No, is it? it was deemed a bit of a um, flop at the time, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um. So there's a lot to talk about with this film. So I'm just going to go straight into the trivia, and we'll just uh, go into it as we go along. Um. Uh, this is my trivia I've gathered obviously from the internet so it's a bit of a weird order starting with some trivia about Danny Lloyd uh, who plays Danny in the film uh, because he was so young and since it was his first acting job Stanley Kubrick was highly protective of the child during the shooting of the film Lloyd was under the impression that the film was actually a drama and not a horror film <laughs> when Wendy carries Danny away while shouting at Jack in the uh, Colorado lounge she's actually carrying a life-size dummy so uh, Danny wouldn't. Uh, so Danny Lloyd wouldn't have to be in a scene. <laughs> he only realised the truth seven years later when he was shown a heavily edited version of the film, and he didn't see the uncut version until he was seventeen, which is eleven years after he made it. What kind of drama did he think would have him <laughs> holding a knife, shouting "Red Rum"? I know. <laughs> <laughs> he probably thought it was the shittest drama. Going. <laughs> this film's awful. Well, we watched um, making. Uh, the Shining, Vivian Kubrick's documentary, uh, which was great, and Danny Lloyd's interviewed, and he's just like, yeah, I didn't even know I was making any money from it. Yeah. What the fuck did they tell this kid? Just having a fun time, <laughs> a winter holiday. To get Jack Nicholson in the right agitated mood, he was fed only cheese sandwiches for two weeks, which he hates. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's quite method. I wouldn't go that far. Jack Nicholson, and Shelley, Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall have expressed open resentment against the reception of the film, feeling that critics and audiences credited Stanley Kubrick solely for the film's success without considering the efforts of the actor's crew or the strength of Stephen King's underlying material. Nicholson and Duvall have said that the film was one of the hardest of their careers. In fact, Nicholson considers Duvall's performance the most difficult role he's ever seen an actress take on in his life. And she also considers it the hardest performance of her life. And do you know what it really shows? Yeah. In the same documentary, there's some very questionable treatment of Shelley Duvall. Yeah, very, very iffy. Um, I, I think people... Because Stanley Kubrick's quite an auteur, isn't he? Mm. Um, I think sometimes people... And, and it's the same with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, when we were speaking of Psycho, yeah. is that a lot of the praise is put upon the director. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, admittedly, it is his vision. It's ultimately, this is the film that he wanted to make. So a lot of the praise should go towards him. Yeah. But also, there are other people involved. You know, the the beautiful sets, mm-hmm. the fantastic soundtrack, yeah. the top-notch acting. You know, he can't be solely responsible for all of them. Other people are involved. No, and to be honest, if Stanley Kubrick was around nowadays, he'd very much... Uh, he'd, he'd be cancelled. I think I his think treatment for, of, yeah, uh, for a lot of a big criticism of Stanley Kubrick's films is the depiction of women in them. Um, the films that I've seen, I, I agree. Um, they are sort of treated as secondary characters. Um, they're either there for their beauty or they're d- downtrodden. Mm. There's and and it works. It works in some cases, and The Shining is an example of that. And we'll go into that as as we continue. Um, but his depiction of women is very iffy, and from the documentary and from what at least yeah. Shelley Duvall has said, his treatment of women isn't that great either. Yeah. Jack Nicholson suggested Scatman Crothers for the film. Uh, he had a tough time on the film as well. Uh, Stanley Kubrick made him do over a hundred takes for the scene where he's, he's simply just having a vision of something happening in the hotel, uh, and you can really tell in that scene. Um, Crover's next film was Bronco Billy, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, who was famous for generally only going on, going with one take, and Crover's actually broke down in tears of gratitude on his first scene of the film where he didn't have to do it again. And in the documentary, he even cries in that, and he's like, oh, he's crying because he was so happy because he got to work with Danny Lloyd, and he, he was such a lovely uh, kid to work with. Bitch, that weren't tears of happiness. <laughs> that was a man on the edge. That was, I've had enough of this shit. <laughs> and that's the thing, you can't force these things, necessarily. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with one take for absolutely everything. Mm. Um, you get it right, and fair enough. But you but... have to trust that the actors you've employed yeah. are capable of doing the work without you sending them completely doolally in yeah. the process. As he lived in England, Stanley Kubrick was not at all familiar with the Here's Johnny line from The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Uh, Jack Nicholson improvised it, and he very nearly didn't use it. And of course, that's one of the lines most associated with this film, if you've seen this film, if you haven't seen this film, you know that moment. You have to say, do, do not listen to this podcast if you've not seen The Shining, please. <laughs> please don't. And please if you haven't, then just watch the it. Yeah. I love this film. And I think everybody should watch it. Horror fans and non-horror fans alike. It, it is really a seminal piece that needs to be watched. And you get your hipsters out there that say, you know, it's a shit film and it's boring and whatever. Well, you know, the thing is... Each to their own. If you can't handle a film with a bit of intelligence and a slow burner, then that's your decision. Um, but don't tell me this isn't a well-made film. Don't tell me this is a shit film because you're lying. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to many of us if you're saying that this is a shit film. Yeah. Th- it's not a shit... There's no, there's no arguing about it. There's no questioning. This is not a shit film. It's not. It's one of those films where merit can be found in it. Even if you don't particularly like the whole package in the end 
there has to be parts of it that show merit. Yeah. That you, you have to say, okay, that was good. Yeah, if you don't think it's as well, if you're a film, fan of films, yeah, it, then you, you have there has to be parts where you're like, do you know what? That's amazing. Yeah, if, even if, if you don't like the whole thing. Exactly. If you say this isn't this isn't a well made film, you're just straight up ignorant. There's there's no way around it. <laughs> okay, it's, it's true. Today. It's true. It's true. It's <laughs> there's no denying it at all. <laughs> you're fucking blind if you think this isn't well made. After Barry Lyndon, Stanley Kubrick started researching his next project by reading a lot of recent books. His secretary could hear him throwing rejected books at the wall in his office. One day, he started reading Stephen King's novel, and after a few hours, when his secretary hadn't heard the familiar sound of a book hitting the wall, she knew he found his next project. And interestingly, Stephen King doesn't believe this because his novel starts slow. <laughs> the film starts slow. <laughs> Stephen King's got a few interesting opinions in this. Let, we get, Stephen we'll get King to not it. like his own novel. We'll, we'll get to this a little later on. Um, <laughs> yeah. Steve, Steve, I mean, Stephen King's an interesting character, isn't he, anyway? I mean, <laughs> this is a guy who forgot he wrote a book because he was on so much cocaine, and it's also oh, a guy who made Maximum Overdrive, so... <laughs> <laughs> Jack Nicholson claims... he was on so much cocaine... <laughs> Jack Nicholson claimed that the scene where Jack snaps at Wendy for interrupting his writing was the most difficult for him, as he was a writer himself and had gotten into similar arguments with his girlfriend. Being a method actor, he drew on his memories of those arguments and added the line, or if you come in here and you don't hear me typing, if I'm in here, it means I'm working. Would Jack- his girlfriend at the time have been Angelica Houston? He lived with her at the time. Yeah, I believe so. There was no air conditioning on the sets, meaning it would often become very hot. The hedge maze was stifling. Uh, actor, actress, stifling. stifling. I, I mean, yeah, you would have been pretty stiff anyway if you were going through there. Not in that way. Actor, actress and crew would often strip off as much of the heavy clothing they were wearing as quickly as they could once the shot was finished. So was that fake snow? Uh, I believe so, yeah. But in the documentary, oh, yeah, it Shelley's is. saying how cold she was. A lot of the snow used in that was used from Empire Strikes Back. Oh. It was being filmed around the same time, around the same place. Oh, secondhand snow. Yeah. The Shining was eventually re-adapted as a 1997 miniseries that followed Stephen King's book more closely. Yeah, and it suffered for it. It's fucking terrible. Um, Kubrick owned the rights to the, ad- to the adaptation that he did, obviously. Um, so in order for King to get the rights to readapt his own book into the miniseries, Kubrick required that he signed a legally binding contract that forced King to no longer be able to bring up frequent public criticism of the film, save for the sole commentary that he was disappointed with Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance as he thought he had been insane before his arrival at the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> It was insane before he got in the Overlook Hotel. He had a drinking problem. <laughs> I don't know. There's many interpretations of this film, which is the sign of a good film, mm. is that we, we can discuss many interpretations. Yeah. And I think one of the interpretations is that he was crazy before he even got there. It's uh, You can either look at this as a straight-up just a haunted house film. Simple as that. Yeah. You can look at it... As uh, commentary on alcoholism, yeah, uh, mental health. You, you, there's honestly so many different interpretations. My personal one is that I think a lot of what was happening was in Jack's head, and by the time we get to see that picture at the end, that I can't. I've not say about that. That's baffling. That still confuses me to this day. 
I, my interpretation is, well, kind of, that... I think he was just going insane from being in isolation for so long. I think it was potentially, uh, the hotel was haunted and Jack, uh, being at the Overlook Hotel, was the hotel's intention from the beginning. Mm. And he... uh, I think it was about fate, and that was his fate. No matter what, he was going to be drawn to that hotel. Yeah, I th- I think the, that. it's also valid. Uh, when the, the, there's so many ways you can look at this. Uh, Stanley Kubrick considered Robert De Niro and Robin Williams for the role of Jack Torrance, but decided against them because he didn't think Robert De Niro would suit the role after watching his performance in Taxi Driver. As he deemed De Niro not psychotic enough for the role. Oh my god. And he didn't think Williams would suit the role after watching Mork and Mindy. Uh, as he deemed him too psychotic for the role. <laughs> yeah. And he also briefly considered Harrison Ford. I could see Harrison Ford and Harrison De Niro Ford in the role. Harrison Ford would have worked. Harrison Ford would have worked if they were going more with Stephen King's novel. Yeah. Um, where the Jack and Wendy were more. All American, mm. and um, like uh, good looking. Well, that's... <laughs> Let's be fair. I'm not saying Jack Nicholson or or Shelley Duvall aren't aren't attractive people, but Stephen King's interpretation was that at least with Wendy, she was a big blonde well, beauty. That actually, girl. yeah, that brings me on to the next bit of trivia. Um, Stephen King, as I've already mentioned, didn't like the casting of Jack. But he also didn't like the casting of Shelley Duvall as Wendy because he wanted her to be a blonde former cheerleader type who never had to deal with any true problems in her life, making her experience uh, in the Overlook all the more terrifying. But he felt that Duvall was too emotionally vulnerable and appeared to have gone through a lot in her life, basically the exact opposite of how he pictured a character. But for me, that makes us sympathise with Wendy more. Yeah, I think mean, I can't imagine it. I could, I could see those uh, actors I previously mentioned. I could see them in the roles as Jack, but other than that, I can't see it being any different now that it exists. No, like because if you didn't have Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall and and their interpretation of the characters, if they were all American hunk football player mm. married to his cheerleader high school sweetheart. They haven't had an issue in their life. This is the first time they've encountered anything. Then you're just getting a very basic, by the book, haunted house story. Yeah. Which is okay. You know, which has worked. You know, I've watched plenty of haunted house films that are great. But it doesn't have the levels that this film has. On the uh, DVD commentary track for Making the Shining, uh, Vivian Kubert revealed that Shelley Duvall received no sympathy at all from anyone on the set. She, uh, this was apparently Stephen Kubrick, uh, Stephen Kubrick? Stanley Kubrick's <laughs> tactic in making her feel utterly hopeless. This is most evident in the documentary when he tells Vivian, don't sympathise with Shelley. Kubrick then goes on to tell Duvall, it doesn't help you. And yeah, I, that's basically what we mentioned earlier on. It, there is moments where he, he basically tells everyone not to sympathise with her. Yeah, which he... Uh, I think he thought that he knew how far he could push Shelley Duvall mm. um, in that sense. Yeah. But is it really necessary? Shelley Duvall was a, and is, you know, a fantastic actress. Mm. Unfortunately, her personal 
issues um, have taken over recently, haven't they? Mm. Famously, there was the Dr. Phil interview in 2016 um, that kind of showcased that she's suffering from quite serious mental illness. Um, she hasn't acted since 2002, but she was an accomplished actress before that point. He watched uh, Robert Altman's Three Women and her performance in that film, and that helped him want her for The Shining. Yeah. And in Three Women, she it, it's one of my favourite performances ever put on film. Um, she plays a very dowdy sad character who thinks that she's um high society when she's not and it's a very sad character and i could see how that would form you know his opinion on her and her capabilities of playing wendy the wendy that he wanted um but she gave a great performance and by all accounts robert altman didn't have to <laughs> didn't have to make her suffer to play no. Millie in Three no. Women. I mean, uh, Stanley Kubrick is happy with, was happy with her performance, and as said in interviews and such, that he's really impressed by her performance and her ability to cope with everything he put her through. Uh, and Shelley Duvall's also said herself that she, uh, she's, she's happy now with the performance now that it's done with. But uh, she also said in an interview for The 100 Greatest Scary Moments on British TV, which we were watching last night, uh, from 2003, that uh, due to her role requiring her to be in an almost constant state of hysteria, she eventually ran out of tears from crying so hard, and to overcome this, she kept bottles of water with her at all times to remain hydrated. Yeah, it... I don't know. Each actor decides, you know, what's right for them. For each role. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not hitched. I'm not an actor. I don't bloody know. But I think sometimes the method goes a little too far. Yeah. Um, and it's a bit scary. And some people put her current mental state in some way down to the treatment that she received on the set of The Shining. And how that never... She never really got over it. Mm. It wouldn't surprise me. No. Stanley Kubrick decided that having the hedge animals come to life as they do in the book was unworkable due to restrictions and special effects, so he opted for the hedge maze instead. <laughs> and that's... And that's taken us into pure fantasy. Yeah. And that's a haunted house film. Mm. Which, which is fine, if that's what you're going for. But, again, like I said, you just get a basic haunted house film. Yeah. With no edge and no levels mm -hmm. to it. The MPAA did not allow blood to be shown in any trailers that were seen by all ages. Kubrick persuaded them that the blood was rusty water and the trailer got past. Uh -huh. So the trailer for this film is the scene of the elevator doors with blood coming from them. Um, rusty water. Rusty water. And it's iconic. It, you yeah. you know this trail. You know what film it is as soon as you, you see do. it. Rusty water. Looks rusty fuck water. all like rusty water. What uh, dumbass. That actually reminds me. Okay. That obviously, this is such. This film is such an important part in, uh, in pop culture, and yeah. uh, you know film history in general to the point that, uh, it's recently received its own sequel, uh, Doctor Sleep. 
which is an adaptation of the Stephen King sequel of yeah, the, the same name. This novel had a sequel. Yeah, um, but this they the way that Mike Flanagan did the film, it is a sequel to this film, mm-hmm. while still remaining loyal to the source material. It was also there's an entire ten to twenty minute sequence in Ready Player One, uh, where they recreate the Overlook Hotel and elements from the film and. That's a kids' film, essentially. It's a tw- you know, it's a twelve here in the UK, and we get a whole sequence dedicated to The Shining. Yeah, it it's one of those that sort of transcended pop culture, and for what was deemed a flop at the time. Yeah, you know that's really well done. Um, we were speaking about Psycho two weeks ago, and that's another horror film that's transcended pop yeah. culture. And these are the kind of films that your parents watched. You know, even if they're not horror fans, mm-hmm. they went to the cinema and watched these. They're, they're aware of the iconic scenes and the iconic images in this film, which, you know, and no, no, no um, uh, harshness on shivers that we discussed last week. But my mum would have absolutely no idea what shivers was. Or Probably what it was for the about. best. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> So you get these horror film films that are a bit of a, not necessarily a cultural reset, but become pop culture icons. This is one of those cultural resets. So this is, is a milestone in horror filmmaking. Yeah, I, I think really when cultural reset is quite a recent term, I, I think. I only heard it quite recently and it's usually... Um, very sarcastic on Twitter, if I'm being honest. But it's quite a good term to use, I think. Um, cultural resets, I would look at, are like Halloween, Psycho, mm. Friday the 13th, where oh, Scream is a definite case of a, a cultural reset mm. in terms of horror films, is where what comes after it is so highly influenced by that one film mm. that it's undeniable that it's, you know, it's reset uh, uh, the culture of the horror film mm. because it's so affected everything that comes after it. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, potentially The Shining didn't do that because I can't think of films that came afterwards because it wasn't a huge success at the time and its status has built and built and built over the years. Can you think of a it's film become, that came after? It's become more influential during modern horror cinema, I'd say. Yeah. Um, especially in the work of Mike Flanagan. Um, paranormal Activity 4 contains a direct rip-off scene of the big wheel bike going around the house. Um, you know, there's so many haunted house films in modern day that have taken so much from this. Um, I mean, you know, Insidious Two, when yeah. Patrick Wilson's possessed, is very much yeah. like he's doing his best Jack Nicholson impression. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I do think it's more influential now than it would have been back then. Yeah. Since yeah. it's gained the appreciation, you, you, don't, it you know, that's about like Friday the Thirteenth. You saw so yeah. many. Well, it wasn't easy Woodland to rip this area. off, you know? It wasn't no. easy to rip off The Shining. No. Well, you would, you would just have someone going crazy in a house. Or yeah, yeah. So, Saul Bass, Bass, whatever, uh, reportedly produced around 300 versions of the film's poster before Stanley Kubrick was satisfied. 
it's a good poster. I mean, I'm looking at it now as we as we speak. It's on our wall. It's a good poster. It keeps it simple. Yeah. But it does make it look like a ghost story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think a lot of um since that poster a lot of uh a lot of the posters after that just contain Jack Nicholson's face in the doorway. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That see that's the image that I knew from, mm. from when I was younger. That's the one I knew, that's the scene. Yeah. I didn't I didn't really I mean, know the big yellow poster. <laughs> Stephen King was first approached by Stanley Kubrick about making the film via an early morning phone call, and uh, he was suffering. Stephen King was suffering from a hangover, shaving, and at first uh, thinking one of his kids was injured. Was shocked when his wife told him Stanley Kubrick was on the phone. Uh, Stephen King recalled that the first thing Kubrick did uh, was to immediately start talking about how optimistic ghost stories are, because they suggest uh, that humans survive death, and uh, he said, "What about Hal, Stephen?" King said. Stanley Kubrick paused for several moments before replying, I don't believe in hell. Stephen King replied saying that there are people who believe in hell and they fear it more than death itself. And it was tremendously effective in helping Kubrick understand the feel of the story. Kubrick seems one of these... He's a fucking weirdo. Yeah, but (laughs) likes people around him to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Um... (laughs) According to Variety magazine, the film took almost 200 days to shoot. However, according to... Oh, I've just completely lost my trivia professionalism. I need to stop using a laptop for this. Um, According to assistant editor Gordon Stainforth, it took much more and nearly a year to film. The film was originally supposed to take 17 weeks, but it took 51. And the film ran so long that Reds and Raiders of the Lost Ark were delayed as the hero wanted to shoot in Elstree Studios. Yeah, because and it doesn't really show up on film too much, and if unless you're really looking, is that the majority of it's on a studio? Yeah, and that's a fucking massive. It must oh, be a yeah. massive studio. Yeah. Um, so I can imagine building it all and taking it all down would take a long time. And I ain't being funny. If you're asking someone to take, you know, poor Scatman Crovers to take, God knows how many. Um, takes mm. of a scene of him pulling a face, <laughs> then no wonder it took so fucking long. Yeah. Um, one film that really influenced Stanley Kubrick, which I found quite interesting actually, was A Razorhead. And he wanted to go for the same mood and feeling as A Razorhead. Yeah. Uh, for this film. And he made the cast watch A Razorhead, Rosemary's Baby, and The Exorcist to put them in the right frame of mind for the film. And yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, Maybe more with Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist because those are very serious films with horror elements added in, in the same way that The Shining is. Eraserhead, though, that's a very interesting influence. Yeah, Eraserhead... Uh, what what Eraserhead and Rosemary's Baby are is that they're both quite slow films. Yeah. Uh, particularly with Rosemary's Baby is that you get build-up, build-up, building up so much... And then you have these moments, you, you know, the moment where she's impregnated and then building up, building up, building up even more and more and more. Uh, and then you get the end scene. The Shining is very similar in yeah. that sense, I find, is that the majority of The Shining is building this tension mm-hmm. and the foreshadowing and the foreboding. And then you get to the end where everything goes 
batshit crazy, like The Exorcist, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just, that's why it's a masterpiece. And I also think it's why some people struggle with it. Yeah. Is because it takes a long time to get to where it's going, but it's constantly building that tension. Mm-hmm. And that that's why I love it. Stephen King got the idea for the book whilst his family were staying in the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. They were the last guests before it shut down for the winter and he saw a group of nuns leaving the hotel. And it got him thinking that the place had suddenly become godless. The King family stayed in room 217, the haunted room in the novel, but 237 in the film. A fire hose also remember, uh, remembered, resembled a snake, which doesn't appear in this film, but it's in the miniseries. And King had already been playing around with a story idea about a boy with ESP, so he combined the two plot lines. I haven't read the book, No, if I'm being honest. I'm not sure if I want to, because I have such an admiration for the film. Yeah. I think it might ruin the book for me. Yeah. Well, Stephen King was, uh, of course, disappointed in this film, very vocal about it. Uh, in an interview with the June 1986 issue of American Film, he said, it's like, a big, it's like a great big beautiful Cadillac with no motor inside. You can sit in it and you can enjoy the smell of the leather upholstery. The only thing you can't do is uh, drive it anywhere. So I would do everything different. The real problem is that Kubrick set out to make a horror picture with no apparent understanding of the genre. Everything about it screams that from beginning to end, from plot decisions to the final scene. Uh, Of course, he particularly disliked Jack Nicholson. And it's because he found in the novel it was pivotal to have Jack as initially a good man who was slowly overcome by the forces of evil and who was fighting a losing battle against alcoholism. King was of the opinion that due to the casting of Nicholson, who was very well known for playing unstable characters, Jack in the film was very much on the edge from the moment the story begins. Uh, and apparently he was very keen on John Voight. Uh, he was also hugely disappointed that the themes of the evils of alcoholism and the disintegra- disintegration of the family unit were relatively unimportant in the film due to his own battle of alcoholism and because of the personal investment in that aspect of the novel, he was largely disheartened by the film. I don't know. I think he's full of shit, to be honest, because... I don't think Stanley Kubrick misunderstood the genre at all. It's clearly a very well-made yeah. horror film. I think I think Stephen King is just was just a little upset because he didn't have talking hedges and snake fire hoses. It's it's a difficult one because when you look at Stephen King's uh, work and and the film adaptations of his work, I don't, he's been the most vocal about The Shining. Um, but I don't know of him disliking any other no, adaptations. No, this is the main one that he's, he's always slagging off. You, you look at Carrie. Yeah. Carrie is, you know, very... Carrie's almost a love story until the end. Mm. It's a teen romance. Yeah. Until the end scene. Um, so I don't know why he had such an issue with The Shining. No. Um, maybe The Shining just didn't make him enough money. No. I don't <laughs> think so. And he, he wanted people to watch his ad- miniseries adaptation. <laughs> Most of the... Now, this is interesting. Because we watched 
Uh, I'll read this out and then I'll, I'll, I'll say what I'm about to say. Most of the elaborate urban legends and conspiracy theories surrounding the film, ranging from it serving as a Holocaust metaphor to a confession that Kubrick helped fake the moon landings, were refuted by Stanley Kubrick during his lifetime or later by the surviving cast and crew. For example, the famous Impossible Corridors are a result of set logistics. Kubrick wanted to shoot Danny on his big wheel in unbroken takes, so the hallways had to connect, and the only way the crew could construct them to fit the vision were uh, meant mirroring the set to fit available soundstage space. The shadow of the helicopter in the opening shot was a result of a framing error. So we watched Room 237, and it's one of the worst documentaries I've ever seen in my life. We had to switch it off because it was. It felt like it was just a, a podcast episode. It was nonsense. You didn't get to see anyone who was being interviewed, and you just had shots of other films. Yeah. So if anyone was mentioned going to the cinema, you had a a, a soundless clip, but a clip from Lamberto Barva's Demons. Yeah. Which was just kind of weird yeah i didn't i didn't really get it, it, what it I, I thought it was maybe a podcast or a radio program that they put together as a film but apparently that's just no that it's was, just that the, was the filmmaker's yeah, vision badly made documentary and you know it, it's just it just pissed me off so much that it was people talking about things that have already been debunked by the creator of the film if he says it's not the case it's not the case they make a whole fucking film about it um I thought it was interesting to showcase some of them. Well, to show how much time people have in their hands. Yeah, it, it, some of it was a bit like, mate, you're going way too much yeah. into this. Particularly as it's been debunked by the filmmakers themselves. But then other ones, it was just, you're clutching at straws here. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. The Shining, as I've said before, is a film where you can get a lot of meaning out of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you can get many conspiracy theories out of it. And this is what the, the film was doing. Yeah. And it just, it, it just became a little frustrating by the end. Because I'm like, no. And to each of them, I was like, no. You're looking far too much into this. It contains a moment where a guy's kid's playing up in the background. He's like, oh, hang on a minute. I'll just sort my kid out. Yeah. Why the fuck would you leave that in a documentary? And... And also, at one point, we said, like, oh, you can see Stanley Kubrick in the clouds. No, you fucking can't. It's awful. I really wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It's an absolute waste of time. Yeah, don't watch it. Despite the critical success of the film... But then again, before we move on to the next thing, do you know what? There are meanings in this film. Like I said, there's many different interpretations of mm. it. You know, I, Stanley Kubrick's a clever filmmaker. I think he's put films in there, things in there on purpose. Yeah, sure. But just not to the extent that these people are going to. No. How I interpret the um, confusing logistics of the layout is that it was uh, a reflection of the maze outside mm. and that the overlook was in very mu- it was very much a maze where you could easily get lost. Yeah. That's how I interpreted it. And the whole moon landing thing, do you know what? He probably did fake the moon landing. Who, who knows? <laughs> who knows? It's something you're never going to find out. Oh, I think um, the thing is, my thing is the moon landing. Uh, if it is fake, I can't wait for someone's deathbed confession. <laughs> if it is, that's going to be really some hot tea there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Despite the critical success of the film, it was nominated for two Razzies. Worst Actress for Shelley Duvall and Worst Director for Stanley Kubrick and it lost both awards. This is bizarre. Very. This... Because, 
this is at the beginning of it's the, the first Razzie one. Awards. It's the, the very, very first, first Razzie Awards. So let's remember that Dress to Kill yeah. and Friday the 13th were also nominated yeah. for Worst Picture. I'm not sure year. what they were thinking when they did these nominations. They, this is nominated the same year as fucking Can't Stop the Music. How can you compare these two films? <laughs> Xanadu. Uh, yeah. It, it's... Which we did a po- double uh, podcast, double bill podcast episode on, if you haven't listened to it. Yeah. Um, it's bizarre. I had to double check today to make sure this wasn't nominated for any Oscars, because I still can't believe it wasn't. That is... You think Tony Clinton Hereditary is a snob. This is the biggest snob. How how this wasn't nominated for any Oscars at all is beyond me. Yeah. I even the soundtrack. Yeah. The cinematography. The cinematography, yeah. Editing, you know, the performances is the biggest shocker. The both of those performances, the lead performances should have been up for nominations. What I find is that early Razzies were <laughs> a bit trolling. I think they deliberately trolled. Mm. Um, famously, Amy Irving was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Yentl the same year she was nominated for a Razzie for her role in Yentl. Uh, I think during the 80s, they were a bit, yeah, um, deliberately went out of their way to sort of annoy people, potentially. Um, or even though Can't Stop the Music is an awful film. <laughs> yeah. But I think sometimes they deliberately nominated famous people, even if they weren't too bad, just, yeah. just to be a little bit of a troll. And despite all the uh, <laughs> unfavourable reviews and the Razzie nominations upon its initial release, the film uh, has been included on... It's ranked 29th on AFI's 100 Years 100 Fails list. 2003, Jack Torres was named the 25th greatest villain of all time. Uh, the film was named the scariest film of all time by Channel 4 on the greatest scariest movie moments list. Was it number one? I think it was. We watched it last night. I don't remember that. Um, Total Film had it as the fifth greatest horror film of all time in 2004. Bravo TV put it at number six on their 100 scariest movie moments. And film critics such as Kim Newman and Jonathan Romy placed it in their all-time top 10 list for the 2002 Sight and Sound poll. And of course, podcast regular... um, Fuck, what's his name? (laughs) We mentioned him every episode... Uh, Roger Ebert, there we go. Oh, God. He's, he's on his favourite films list as well. Is it? It's Roger Ebert approved. Wow. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> um, okay, can I just go back to the, the Razzie? I, I'm just thinking about Shelley Duvall's performance. Mm. I think what people have the issue with and why she was nominated for the Razzie is because she's actually quite an annoying character. Deep down, I think what people were expecting from horror at that time was your Ellen Ripley, you know, the strong Mm. female character, or someone like Laurie Strode, who was, you you know, a a dowdy girl throughout the film and then came into her own at the end and was a strong, you know, lead Mm. and final girl. Wendy Torrance, although a final girl, essentially, um, the spoiler alert, there's only actually one death in this film. Yeah. Although two, essentially... Two, Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah, excuse me. Yeah, but one murder, excuse mm. me. 
Um, she's essentially a final girl, but she's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. She is. And Shelley Duvall played her that way. Yeah. You know, that was the vision. And it works. She Sometimes you just want to slap her around the face and tell her to get a grip, get a hold of herself. That's... That was the intent, and mm. I think it works. And we'll get into it when yeah. we get into the podcast. Well, Stephen King said uh, Kubrick's version of Wendy is one of the most misogynistic characters ever to be put to film. She just dared to scream and be stupid. But Duvall struck back at this and said that The Shining was a success. Stanley Kubrick took a second-rate novel and made a first-rate movie. <gasps> it was a success. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> For his part, Kubrick never counterattacked King, uh, although in private, Kubrick did say that King's writing was weak. He threw away his script that King submitted to him and the studio and refused to take any of King's suggestions or field his questions during the shoot. Kubrick did say publicly with regards to King's take on Wendy that he never brought that the, str- the strong, pretty, self-reliant Wendy as described in a book would stay with a loser like Jack for so long. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's the point. Uh, so this uh, was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2018 for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Mm-hmm. As it should. Yeah. Uh, when, when discussing the original Stephen King book in an interview with, uh, with critic Michael Clement... Uh, Stanley Kubrick said that the novel is by no means a serious literary work, uh, literary work, but the plot is the most part extremely worked out and uh, for a film that is often all that really matters. Yeah, it's got to be open to interpretation, I feel. And I, I think sometimes when novels are adapted, if they stick too closely to the novel, it doesn't necessarily work. Mm-hmm. You know, the the novel, a, a good novel, a, a good novel, a, a decent length novel, not a short story, but a novel, takes you hours to read. Yeah. You can't put that into an hour and a half, two hour film and incorporate every single part of that. So there's always going to be room for interpretation. Sometimes that interpretation is, you know, quite different. To the intent of the novel, mm-hmm. and that, that, I, I don't see I don't see a problem with it really, you know you're taking a basic premise, and creating something different different out of it, but people are still potentially going to go back to the novel and give Mister Stephen King some money. Yeah. So I don't know why he's complaining. Yeah. So much. So, shall we get into the film? Yes. Uh, also, before I do, uh, just one more um, bit of trivia. The typing, uh, the uh, All Work and No Play Makes Jack a Door Boy uh, scene, oh, whenever uh, Jack Nicholson is typing in the film, it is someone typing those words um, that was added in there to make it more realistic, and someone actually did type... 400 pages. I think it was Stanley Kubrick's receptionist typed 400 pages worth. Oh my God, yeah. Um, I see it in the scene because she's yeah. flicking through it all and it, you know, you see that every single page is full of those yeah. words and I'm like, oh my God, the poor bastard who had to do that. 
So, 45 minutes entire episode. The plot for this film is a family heads to an isolated hotel for the window... Window? window. But a winter uh, where a sinister presence influences the father into violence whilst a psychic son sees horrific forebodings from the past and future. We get a beautifully shot opening sequence with the soundtrack playing. Yeah, it's an aerial shot of the mountains and a car driving um, towards the Overlook Hotel. So this is very um, solitary, isn't it? This yeah. hotel. It's completely in the middle of nowhere, uh, on, on top of some mountains. Really hard to get to. Yeah. And we get a title card telling us that this is the interview and Jack Torrance has an appointment with Mr. Orman whilst Danny and Wendy are having breakfast at home and we are introduced to Tony, Danny's imaginary friend that he speaks through... How do I word this? He speaks in another voice pretending to be Tony, basically, whilst wiggling his finger. Um, yeah, so Tony lives in Danny's mouth. Yeah. But when he speaks, it's essentially Danny in a... Uh, lower tone and wiggling his finger as if Tony's talking from his finger. Yeah. Like and, a puppet. and we find out that Tony is telling Danny not to go to the hotel. Uh, Jack's speaking with Mr. Orman. We get some exposition about how he's a school teacher and he's a writer looking for a change. And we find out the Overlook Hotel closes over winter because of the high levels of snow. Uh, to which Jack is warned about the feeling of isolation while staying there. And uh, Jack says that's fine because that's all he needs for writing. Yeah, he says five minutes apiece is just what he wants. And Orman informs Jack about the caretaker. Who, no, I swear he says Charles Grady here. Yeah, Charles Grady. His name he is says Charles very, Grady. His name's very different later on. It film, changes. It? Yeah. Dalbert Grady. Mm-hmm. Um, he murdered his family with an axe in 1970 and killed himself after, and police thought it was down to cabin fever. But Jack isn't put off by this idea because he thinks his wife will love it because she loves horror films and ghost stories. Yeah, and from the start, you're getting this foreboding. The one great thing about this film is that the soundtrack does what the scene isn't necessarily doing. Yeah. So even if it's just a, a very plain scene or just, you know, people sat there or somebody walking, the soundtrack continues and it's still that foreboding music. Yeah. Um, there are moments of silence, but... That soundtrack is always there, as if it's part of the hotel. Mm -hmm. Tony tells Danny that Jack got the job and Wendy will receive a call about it, to which she then gets a call telling her that Jack got the job. And Danny has a vision of blood coming from the elevator doors and the Grady twins and himself screaming. Yes, and he faints, doesn't he? Yeah. So we've got a nurse checking Danny over. Now this, I believe, this doctor. is new, uh, Doctor, new to the extended cut. So we are talking about the extended cut today, uh, which has, I think, two or three Oh, extra... so the Doctor wasn't in the original? Uh, I don't think so, no. Oh. No. Oh, um, it's definitely around this scene. It's either this scene or the scene before that's not in it, um, and it's quite new. But this new release, I think it was just by Warner Brothers. Yeah, it's just by Warner Brothers, um... Highly recommend it. If you've got a 4K player, this is the best 4K transfer I've seen. Oh, it looked fantastic. Yeah, it really did. And I, I've seen this film on many different formats. Uh, but th- this is the best it's looked from the Blu-ray. 4K that we got. <laughs> the Blu-ray. Apparently 4K and Blu-ray aren't the same thing. No, they're so. not. They're not. 
<laughs> the doctor checks Danny over, questions him about uh, what happened when he was brushing his teeth. Uh, and he said the last thing he remembers was talking to Tony, a little boy who lives in his mouth. Um, the doctor tells Wendy there's nothing wrong with Danny and it may have been brought on by emotional factors Uh, Wendy lights the most suspenseful cigarette in cinema history (laughs) she takes (laughs) her fucking ages Uh, but she's a bit of a klutz it just looks like the the end of it is just dangling off the entire scene (laughs) you're just waiting for it to fall she's goofy yeah famously Shelley Duvall was told that she was born to play olive oil which she did mm. after after this film in the same year wasn't it yeah same year but she filmed it after this film for robert altman um and that's the kind of character she the, you know she's gangly and she's a little awkward and that's who wendy is in this film yeah and she does it really well and it works. Yeah. She explains to the doctor about when Danny started talking to Tony and how it started after he dislocated his shoulder when he first started nursery because Jack had been drinking. Danny scattered his school papers all over the room and Jack pulled his arm with a bit too much force. Yeah. And you can see in Wendy's face that she doesn't quite believe what she's saying. Even though she's kind of, she's defending Jack, in her face it says that maybe there's something underlying there, that she's, she doesn't quite believe what the defence that she's giving. No. Even though she is defending Jack and saying it could happen to anyone. Yeah. And it also, it's also some more of that um, great foreshadowing where we find out that Jack had this drinking problem. Yeah. And it it, it makes you look at him in a different way, especially with what he did to Danny. It mm-hmm. makes you, you know, a little more aware. Because you know you're watching a horror film, you're like, oh, is this where it's going? Yeah. Um, but now we find out Jack has stopped drinking and said if he drinks again, Wendy can leave him. And we get another tile cutter in closing day and the Torrance family are now driving to the Overlook Hotel and discussing the Donner Party, a bunch of cannibals. Yeah, so Jack's quite um, pleased to openly talk about cannibalism in front of his son, his young son. Uh, Wendy tries to scold him, but Danny defends him by saying he's seen it all on TV anyway. And when they get to the hotel, Allman shows them around. Danny's playing darts in the games room and he spots the Grady twins in there who are just watching him. They look at each other and they leave. Yeah, so when Jack's there, though, when Mr. Allman um, comes to meet him, he's reading a Playgirl magazine. The Playgirl is the female version of Playboy Mm -hmm. with lots of naked men in there. Which is a bit weird. Uh, it's kind of, it was targeted at women and gay men. So yeah. it was a bit strange. I don't know how much to read into that. Um, maybe it was left there by the bell later on in the film. Maybe. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, maybe. <laughs> we get some exposition about the hotel. We find out it was built on an Indian burial ground in 1907. And that is something that was taken into a lot of films after this. Every fucking haunted house film was built on an Indian burial ground. Oh, yeah. I think they may have actually been doing an article horror prior to this. Um, it's a well-known thing, though. It, it's a well-known thing in American culture, the whole Indian burial ground. You'll probably find a lot of older films discuss Indian mm. burial grounds as well. And that's one thing in Room 237. Like, oh, it's all about Native Americans, this film. Oh, 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 oh. No, it's not. Shit, fuck off. 
This film's not about whatever the fuck they were talking about. Not necessarily, but I I think obviously the the, the fact that it's built on an Indian burial yeah. ground and in was it nineteen oh seven? Yeah. And that the um Native Americans tried to um destroy it, basically. Mm. They protested it. Maybe potentially the place could be cursed. Yeah. Uh, all men shows in the gold room, which is like a big room for ballroom dancing and stuff. Uh, all alcohol has been removed from the premises, and Dick is introduced to the family. Dick, Cal- Dick Cal- the cook. Yeah, Dick. What's his name? Dick Halloran. Halloran. Dick Halloran. So throughout this, Wendy seems a lot more enthusiastic yeah. than Jack. Yeah. Um. She talks a lot. She talks a lot of shit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. She does though, and that that's her character. Whereas Jack's not as enthusiastic, um, but but he's not necessarily grumpy mm. about it. But there's a very different uh, personalities going yeah. on there. Um, and, and like I said, you know, this is like, Wendy's can be quite annoying in this film, can't she? Yeah, yeah, she's very chatty, which could get on some people's nerves. Uh, Dick uh, takes Wendy and Danny to the kitchen and he calls Danny Duck, which Wendy questions him how he knew that they call him Duck. And then, after this, we get a bit of an explanation to this, as he psychically asks Danny if he wants some ice cream. Yeah, he does. And uh, he then gets him some ice cream and explains to him that he also has The Shining and that he had it when he was younger. But Danny explains he can't talk about it because Tony won't let him. So The Shining is essentially telekinesis, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's telekinesis where people with The Shining can telepathically um, converse with each other. Yeah. But also they have visions of the past. Yeah. And the future. Yeah, to which obviously Danny's had uh, visions of the Grady twins and Dick explains that previous events at the hotel have left the trail and Danny asks about room 237 where Dick basically says to him, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? You're not going in room 237. <laughs> not that <Yeah>. harsh. <laughs> he gets really angry at him. <laughs> he does. But Dick also explains that places are like people. Some shine and some don't. The Overlook Hotel shines and traces of the things that have happened linger. And um, people with The Shining can see that. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking, oh, th- this haunted... Is it a haunted hotel? Or is what happened there lingering and people with The Shining can see that? Yeah. Because there's also the question as to whether... Jack has yeah. the shining as well. Yeah. Um, because it seems to be genetic in mm. the sense of Dick having conversations with his grandmother who yeah. had the shining as well. So the, the, the question throughout, and it's never really answered, is does Jack have the shining too? Yeah. So it's a month later and Danny's riding around the hotel on his big wheel... Um, I think Great it's just called a big wheel. On this. Oh, the sound design's fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I, I just called it a tricycle. Um, but he's going from wooded floor to carpet. And the the noises are, are quite overwhelming. Yeah. Um, when it's on the hard wooden floor. Um, yeah, it's great sound design. 
Uh, Wendy brings Jack some breakfast and Jack tells him that when he came in for his interview, he felt like he'd been there before. Mm. Uh, after this, Jack is throwing a ball against the wall whilst Wendy and Danny explore the maze and Jack stares at a model of the maze after this. It's now Tuesday and Wendy is opening the biggest can of fruit cocktail in the world whilst watching a news report about <laughs> yes. incoming snowstorms. Yeah, so more foreboding, more foreshadowing. The TV, you get one story about a murder. Yeah. Uh, a past murder. One story about a kidnapping in the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no, uh, um, not a kidnapping. Someone's mysteriously disappeared. Yeah. And then the next news story is about the storm coming ahead and how they don't understand because it's so fresh and so sunny but yet this storm is on its way. Yeah. Honey, you've got a storm coming. <laughs> Thank you. Danny's riding the horse on his big wheel again and he spots room 237. He touches the door and has a vision of the Grady twins. And um, Wendy goes to speak to Jack whilst he's writing and he is not happy about this at all. He basically tells her to fuck off because he's tried to finish his work. Yeah, he's absolutely fuming and... This is so he's a little weird at the beginning. Jack Nicholson has that weird sense yeah. about him, um, and then he's kind of grumpy-ish. Mm-hmm. Then he's actually quite condescending to Wendy yeah. when she brings him breakfast, and this is where he begins to become aggressive. Yeah, it's a very slight, very slight changes in his personality mm-hmm. because Jack Nicholson is a fantastic actor and is able to do that. But it's this slow build throughout of his changing persona um, that's just fantastic. Yeah, and uh, he, he tells her that whenever she interrupts him, it distracts him and he has to start his work again. And tells her not to come in if she can hear him typing and tells her to get the fuck out. Uh, and then you really see his transition in the next scene when it's Thursday. Danny and Wendy are playing out in the snow. And Danny's, uh, Danny, Jack is just watching her from the window with a very evil look on his face. Um, uh, this is the moment where you're like, okay, someone's seriously up with him now. Yeah, he he looks creepy and he's looking at them creepy. But it also says a lot about Wendy's uh, temperament and her yeah. personality is that after she's spoken to like a piece of shit, mm. she's like, oh, okay, and just leaves. Yeah. Like nothing happened. You get the sense that she's used to this. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see it in... Wendy's face in yeah. Charlie Duvall's performance and you you feel for her and you continue to feel for her even though she's a little annoying even though sometimes you, you know we've done it in the past with people in relationships where you're like oh just fuck off I'm trying to concentrate mm. you know it seems like Wendy's a little too used to being spoken to like that. and it's easy to believe that they've been in a relationship for years as well thanks yeah. to their performances and their chemistry there is a chemistry between them in that sense even yeah. though they're a very odd couple as well they look like an odd couple um yeah potentially yeah it's now Saturday and they're completely snowed in and Wendy's having a conversation with the fire service on the radio about how it's all the lines are down and it's one of the worst storms I've ever seen. Yeah, so she's she's very chatty and she doesn't seem to be getting much back from the ranger. Mm. Um, and you can see maybe a little bit of loneliness setting in 
Because if she's doing what Jack's told her to do and mm-hmm. leaving him alone and he's spending all his time there, then she's, she's going to be a little lonely. She's yeah. got no one to talk to. She's only really got Danny and Danny can't really hold an adult conversation. No. That she potentially would want. Um, so she just kind of chat shit with the ranger yeah. and you can tell she's a little deflated when he's like oh okay then uh, bye yeah and again we're feeling for wendy because she is a bit of a sad character yeah danny's on his big wheel again and now he comes across the grady twins uh, right in front of him and this is again one of the most iconic scenes from this film yeah um, where they're, of course, telling him to go and play with them forever and ever and ever. And he then has a vision of them murdered with uh, the walls covered in blood. <laughs> You're not doing an impression of them? No, I thought I'd leave that down to you. Hello, Danny. Oh Come and play God. with us. <laughs> <laughs> Did I sound like a, like a sex chat line? <laughs> um, no, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite as good as the monologue from last week, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with it. Okay. We've got some more impressions coming up what you could do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this scene is absolutely terrifying and so iconic. Again, it's one of those scenes that you know it even if you haven't seen the film. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Danny tells... I mean, it's so iconic that they do conventions. They do. They're they not do. in the film that much, no. but you get the, the Grady twins signing stuff at conventions. <laughs> yeah. I'd get shit signed by the Grady twins. <laughs> Uh, Danny tells Tony that he's scared and Tony tells him to remember what Dick said it's like pages in a book it isn't real it's now Monday and Danny goes to get his fire engine despite Wendy telling him that Jack's asleep but Jack is not asleep and we get a really creepy scene uh, where Jack asks him to go and sit on the bed with him and what's great about this scene is uh, Danny Lloyd's acting who genuinely looks like he's traumatised from some in the past with his dad when yeah. he's with him he looks uncomfortable uh, it's it's absolutely believable um, yeah he actually for a child actor yeah it's very very good performance well child actor who's essentially only been in this of note yeah yeah but he was a child actor at the time yeah 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 and also there's a believability to Danny because he's not a precocious child no uh, which sometimes children in films can be. Mm. He's, he's kind of a bit... He's a bit gormless. Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. He he, move, he he doesn't move very well. No. <laughs> I know that sounds weird to say, but when he walks, um, he's just like a normal kid. Yeah. Um, which, again, like Wendy being a normal woman, mm. it makes um, them more believable and we root for them more. Yeah. We want to see them do well and survive yeah and, and his personality is completely different to when he's not acting like on that interview that's the first interview i've ever seen with him and he's like a completely different person yeah um mm. they have a back and forth him and jack about uh whether danny's having a good time at the hotel danny asks if jack's feeling bad he says he isn't he's just tired and can't get no sleep he's got too much to do danny asks jack if he likes the hotel and tells him he loves it and he wishes they could stay there forever and ever and ever, just like the Grady twins mm. said. And Danny asked Jack if he'd ever hurt him and Wendy, and Jack wants to know if Wendy said this, uh, and he said he loves him very much and he'd never do anything to hurt him. But you, from the way it's delivered, it's really unsettling. And you're like, okay, you are in fucking danger. Hmm. It's now Wednesday, and Danny is playing with his toy cars, and a tennis ball rolls towards him. 
and he finds room 237 open whilst Wendy finds Jack having a bad dream. And what was the dream that Jack had? Uh, that he chopped his family up into little pieces. Yeah. And you see Wendy, she's looking at the electronics in the basement. Yeah. Now, by all accounts, that's meant to be Jack's job. Mm-hmm. But all we've seen Jack do is try and write his novel. Yeah. And be a, a, a flat-out bastard. Yeah. Um, so, again, I th- I th- it's that downtrodden Wendy... Mm-hmm. She's she's doing the shit that Jack should be doing, and then Jack has to cheat to have a go at her about the contract he signed uh-huh. later on. Uh, Danny approaches them, sucking his thumb, and he's got a big big red mark on his neck. And Wendy accuses Jack of doing this to him and takes him away, or takes the life size dummy away. Yeah, that's, yeah, my... that's the life size dummy. <laughs> uh, Jack's talking to himself and doing his best impression of a Charles Manson dance. Yes, yeah, he is actually. <laughs> he then goes into the gold room and says that he'd sell his soul for a drink, and this magically makes bartender Lloyd appear with the bar now full of alcohol. Yeah, so Jack's hallucinating now. Yeah. So this he's he's lost it. He hasn't completely lost it, but he's struggling to find it. And he says that the drink is the white man's burden. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure what that means. I don't know. I have no idea, but he, he wants sure uh, he means. wants a bottle of bourbon. And uh, they have a conversation about how things are going. And he tells him that he's having a few problems with the old sperm bank upstairs. Yeah. And you get the impression that for the whole film, really, Jack just doesn't like Wendy. Yeah. But he's stuck with her. Mm-hmm. And that makes you think that potentially this isn't even a ghost story. Mm. This is all him imagining all of this. Yeah. And really, he's just had enough. Yeah. And five months on the wagon have driven him completely insane. Mm -hmm. And because he hates his wife so much, he's going to kill them. Yeah. Because he's just had enough of Wendy. Well, now that he's had his drink, his real feelings are coming out and he starts talking about how he'd never hurt Danny and Wendy... Um, but Wendy will never let him forget about when he did hurt Danny. Yeah, it, a lot of it seems to be directed at Wendy mm-hmm. rather than Danny. Yeah, and I think this is definitely his subconscious coming through and he's just listening off all these things that are on his mind mm-hmm. um, now that he's had a, his first drink in ages. Wendy comes screaming for him with a baseball bat and tells him that, that a crazy woman... baseball bat. <laughs> tells him that a crazy woman tried to strangle Danny. And uh, Dick is watching TV... Uh, a news report about a snowstorm and he has his vision the one that was shot a hundred times whilst Danny is foaming at the mouth and Jack investigates room 237 and he finds someone there bearing it all he does so Wendy when Wendy enters she's hysterical and he goes are you out of your fucking mind and I think to a certain degree we'd all be like that. We're like, what the fuck are you chatting about? <laughs> but she just casually answers no. <laughs> She's like hysterical, but it's that annoying, snivelling sort of hysterical. She's like, get yourself together, love. What are you chatting about? <laughs> but he but, d- but he does find something in room two three seven. He does. <laughs> she's he finds a naked woman in the bathtub. And she's got everything out, which shocks me for a fifteen in the UK. I don't think you're allowed full frontal nudity. It's not sexualized though, is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, she yeah, does seduce him. Yeah, so she she slowly gets out the bath and goes towards him. He starts to go towards her with quite the smirk on his face. Um, 
maybe he's sexually repressed as well. Mm. Potentially, you know, it's not really said outright in the film, but, you know, who knows what went on in the bedroom. Um, but he's got a smirk on his face, goes up, they embrace and start kissing, don't they? Yes. So it, it's not that sexual. Uh, but then he realises, by looking in the mirror, it's not actually a, a young model-looking woman. It's an old lady who's rotten. She is rotten. She's got big green scabs on her body. Yeah. And she's an older woman and not particularly firm, is she? No, I'm going to assume this, lady. this may have been Grady's wife. Grady's wife? Yeah. She wouldn't have been that old. This this is an elderly lady. Yeah, but she would have been by that point, considering when it happened. I would suppose, yeah, because that's her decomposing body. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, so he leaves the room, and he tells Wendy there was nothing in 237, and Danny gave himself the bruises. We know that's not true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Danny's having visions of red rum written on the door, and blood coming out of the elevator again. And Wendy suggests leaving the hotel, but Jack is absolutely fuming at the suggestion. Yeah, he he wants to stay. There's something keeping him there. Yeah. Essentially. Even if his son's mental and physical health are in danger. Yeah, which is a big change from when they first went to the hotel. And like you said, uh, Wendy was very excited about being there and he wasn't really that bothered. But now it's the other way around. She wants out of there and he's just... Adamantly staying. Mm-hmm. Jack pushes a bunch of stuff over in the kitchen and goes to the gold room where there's now a ball going on with lots of people there. Yeah, so it's uh, a big band playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the song is, but it's used throughout the film um, in relation to the 1920s setting. Yes. Um, everyone's dressed like flappers and in uh, proper... Is it coattail? Cocktail. Cocktail, cocktail attire, there cocktail. we go. Um, apart from Jack. Yes. Dick calls the fire service and asks them to call the overlook and see if everything's okay, whilst Jack orders the hair of the dog that bit him at the bar. And Lloyd tells him there's no charge because his money's no good there. Orders from the house. Yeah, is this... Uh, oh, yeah. This is and when a... Jack says, I'm the kind of guy who likes to know who's buying his drinks. And uh, Lloyd replies, that matter doesn't concern you right now. Yes. But the idea of drinks around the house is quite an interesting one Mm -hmm. in the context of the film. Yeah. So he uh, walks away, does a little dance and gets a glass of advocates spilt down in by a waiter uh, who then takes him to the bathroom and tells Jack that his name is Dalbert Grady. Now, this is interesting because, again, it's a different name to the start of the film that was given. Yeah. Uh, but his name's Dalbert Grady, and Jack asks if he was the caretaker there, asks if he's married, and then Grady tells him he has a wife and two daughters. To which Jack tells him that he was the caretaker, and he recognises him from the newspaper. Yeah, and that he chopped his wife and daughters into tiny little pieces before blowing his own brains out. Yeah, and Grady has no recollection of this and tells Jack that he is the caretaker and has always been the caretaker there, which makes sense with the picture at the end, Mm -hmm. um, but still leaves a lot of questions open. Yes. Grady tells Jack that Danny is uh, trying to bring an outside party into the situation. He uses a racial slur to describe Dick. And Grady tells Jack about Danny's powers and that he thinks he's a naughty boy. And Jack blames it all on Wendy because she interferes. Yeah, so again, he keeps going back to Wendy. 
and his issues with Wendy uh-huh. rather than with Danny. And Grady tells Jack to have a talking with them and maybe something more. And that his daughters tried burning the overlook down and he corrected them and his wife. Yeah, corrected. It's weird the way he says corrected though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Corrected. What does Danny start shouting? Red Ram. <laughs> Basically. Um, and he won't acknowledge Wendy. And Tony is speaking instead. So that Danny's not there and he can't wake up. Yes. Jack's stalking the hotel in a trance. He's pretty much in a trance right now. Isn't yeah, he? he takes the power source out of the radio. Yeah, yeah, he does actually. So he's still got sort of conscious thought, even though he's kind of turning into a zombie. Yeah. Um, Dick calls the ranger again and is told there was no answer. So 8am the next day, Dick's on the plane to Denver to go and visit the Overlook. And he calls Larry, who works at a snowcat rental place. Now, we're saying snow cat. It is, I googled it. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. good. Snow cat. They're like big uh, trucks that It's like lorries. a small plow. I... No, 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 I suppose it's not because you're not plowing anything. It looks like a forklift truck, but. It's just something that you can drive over yeah, snow. Yeah, basically. Without slipping. Uh, he tells them that the people at the Overlook turn out to be unreliable arseholes and he needs to get up there as soon as possible. <laughs> Uh, Wendy goes to speak to Jack with a baseball back and finds his work, so-called work, which is just page after page of all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Uh, which just makes it even more disturbing that all that time he was acting so serious about his work, mm-hmm. telling her to leave him alone, and that's all he was typing all that time. Yeah. Uh, he Jack appears and asks how she likes it, and she's come to talk to him about Danny and suggests that they should discuss what should be done with him. Um... And then taken into a doctor as soon as possible. Jack mocks her and asks if she's ever thought about his responsibilities and his employment. And this is this is the part where I think people were wanting her to be Ellen Ripley or Laurie Strode. Yeah. And just run up to him and smack him one for being a crazy bastard. Yeah. Um, he eventually gets one, but it's after a long time. Yeah, uh, but the, the build-up in this scene is insane. Oh, it's, yeah. It's superb. Yeah. It really is so intense, um, so masterfully written and directed, and the whole setup in the scene is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, Wendy swings the bat at him as they walk up the stairs. He still continues walking towards her and tells her she's going to bash her brains the fuck in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Wendy says she needs a little time to think about things, and Jack says, you've had your whole fucking life to think things over. Yeah. Um, which I think was quite interesting in, you know... She maybe kind of wasted her life, particularly with a man who mm-hmm. just doesn't love her. Yeah. Uh, so she continues swinging the bat and he asks her to give it to him. Instead, she hits him in the hand and then in the head with the bat and knocks him down the stairs, which is what we've all been waiting for this entire time. It is, but it also almost feels like it's an accident that she eventually hit him. I, the head he, wasn't. He the hand hit, made Yeah. Him. But she hit the hand and then was like, oh shit. Yeah, just hit the head now. Uh, And he then he she drags him into the food cupboard and locks him in there. And Jack asks her to let him out. He'll forget the whole thing. He's feeling dizzy. He needs a doctor. Uh, But she tells him she's taking Danny to a doctor, and he tells her that he has a big surprise coming to her, and that she's not going anywhere. And he he's trying to play on her weakness, which is her love for him. And so he's like, I think I need a doctor. Honey, don't leave me in here. And trying to play on that. Yeah. Luckily, she's grown a pair. 
Mm-hmm. And she doesn't let him out. Yeah. And he tells her to go and check the snowcat and the radio. And so she does. And the battery has been removed from the snowcat, as well as the radio, of course. Mm-hmm. It's then 4pm and Grady talks with Jack about him not taking care of business. And Jack wants one more chance to take care of business and prove himself. So Grady lets him out of the cupboard. Yeah, seemingly. Grady so we, says... We never see Grady. Grady's just a voice on the other side, isn't of the door? Yeah, isn't he? He says what everyone's thinking about Wendy at that point is like, oh, she's very resourceful. She's a lot stronger than you thought. Yes, she yes. is. Dick's on his way in, in the snowcat. Wendy's having a nap. <laughs> she is. Yeah, I do find it amusing that she's having a nap in the scene after everything that's happened. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> then he grabs the knife and some lipstick and starts repeating red rum again. And he gets more and more aggressive. He does. He writes it red rum on the bathroom door and wakes Wendy up as he starts shouting it. She looks in the mirror and then it's finally revealed that it says murder backwards. <gasps> I actually, the first time I watched this, I didn't click on until that moment. Oh, did you not? No. <laughs> Jack starts well, acting... Red rum was a whore, a race horse back in the day. So... I just thought it was funny. Jack starts axing into the bedroom door. And Wendy takes Danny into the bathroom and helps him escape through the window. But she can't fit out of there. Whilst Jack is reciting Three Little Pigs nursery rhyme. (laughs) And he starts axing into the bathroom door whilst Wendy's waiting there with a knife screaming. And again, this is the iconic moment that absolutely everyone knows. Yeah. She's sort of against the wall, holding the knife, scream every single hit she screams at. Mm-hmm. And then we get the iconic scene of his face in a hole in the door. Here's Johnny. That's it, that's what you're going to give us. Here's Johnny. Thank you. But to British <laughs> audiences, here's Johnny doesn't really mean anything. No. Because <laughs> you never really got Johnny Carson over here. <laughs> But in America, it meant something. (laughs) So, Wendy... uh, Jack puts his hand in the door, tries opening it, and Wendy cuts him with the knife. And Jack hears Dick approaching. And... uh, He's distracted by Dick. He's distracted by Dick and walks away with the axe. we all. (laughs) Danny hides in the kitchen whilst Dick enters the overlook. Stop! (laughs) (laughs) You knew what you were doing there. Jack jumps out from behind the wall and kills him with an axe to the chest. So we've had all this build-up with Dick. We've seen his travels. We've seen his <laughs> conversation with his friend. All this. And we think Dick's going to save the day, as we all usually <laughs> think. And he gets there. Bam. Straight away, he's killed. So Dick arrives and it's all over <laughs> by the time you know it. I think that's great. I think that's a great choice because in the novel he survives. He does survive, yeah. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. You don't see it. You think he's going to save the day. Mm-hmm. You don't think Wendy's strong enough, so she needs Dick to come along and save the day. Bam. Mm-hmm. That's a great jump scare. Yeah. And they still find a way to bring him back in Doctor Sleep as well, despite mm. him dying, so... Um, it's not so much of a loss there, because you still have to see him again. Um, so Danny starts screaming, and Jack starts chasing him. Uh, Wendy's running through the hotel looking for Danny and she finds a man in, in in a rather bizarre sequence of events. She finds a man in a bear costume with his ass hanging out, sucking off a waiter. Yeah, essentially. And this is where this is where we start to think it's a haunted house film. Yeah. Because now Wendy's seeing all of this shit. 
And we, you know, we don't think Wendy has The Shining. No. Um, potentially, maybe all three of them have. Mm-hmm. Really open to interpretation, but it's quite a, a jarring image because this bear costume, really shit bear costume, his eyes yeah. hanging out like, what? Where the fuck's this come from? <laughs> and they, they just look so confused as to why uh, Wendy's screaming at this. <laughs> yeah, it's a little homophobic of you, Wendy, you know? <laughs> Uh, Danny runs into the maze and Jack chases after him. Wendy finds Dick. <laughs> then she also finds a butler with blood on his head saying, Great party, isn't it? That's Grady. Is that Grady? That's Grady. Oh, he looks different in this scene. That's great. Yeah, it's Grady. Uh, Wendy finds sure the... Lo- now, this is a new scene for the extended version. Wendy finds the lobby in darkness, covered in cobwebs, and a skeleton sitting at tables everywhere. Yeah, this, this again, this is her having these visions now. And this is very haunted house, isn't yeah. it? I'm not a thousand percent sure if it works, if it's necessary, that part. It's probably what it was edited out in the first place. I think so. Danny retraces his steps in uh, the maze and covers them up. So Jack can't find him and he hides. Yeah, very um, clever. Very clever of him. Wendy watches the blood coming out of the elevated doors, as Danny predicted. And Danny follows Jack's footsteps out of there to escape, finds Wendy, and they escape on a snowcat. And we get a quick edit to Jack the next day, who has froze to death. Yeah, another iconic image. Yeah. I think that's become sort of meme now as well. Uh, and then we get uh, the, the ballroom music playing again in the gold room, and we zoom in on a framed picture on the wall of Jack at the 4th of July ball in 1921 uh, with a lot of other people. Yes. What does it all mean? I don't fucking know. <laughs> but I know I was thoroughly entertained for uh, two and a bit hours. Yeah, it is genuinely one of the greatest films of all time. It really is. It it really is. There's something for... Every, you know, if people like their horror but they don't like their over-the-top gore, it's, you know, it, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a psychological thriller, it also works. As a drama, it works. It's just, I, I genuinely... Yeah. It's a film where I can't pick a single problem with it. No. At all. No. I th- and we, we've touched on our interpretations of it, but I don't... I, I really don't know. Yeah. It, it's, it stays with you afterwards because of that, because you're trying to figure it all out. And not because it's particularly nonsensical, but just because it... Stays with you. Yeah. And you want to figure out the mystery. Yeah. But I think, you know, the mystery can't be solved. No. Because Stanley Kubrick didn't imagine it that way. No. That it was just open to our own interpretations and what we take from it. Yes. So that is a shining. Uh, let us know your interpretations of the film and uh, why you love it so much. Uh, we are Horacle Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horacle Trash on Twitter. Uh, if you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Like, follow on Epic Owls and follow us on Spotify. I'm Gazmo205 on Instagram, GazCruise92 on Twitter, and DeletGaz92 on Letterboxd. I'm Chris Barker823 on Instagram, Letterboxd, and Twitter. And we will be back on Friday with our top 10. <laughs> We did 10 or 20. We've got a list of... Uh, I'm going to say top 10. I'm pretty sure it's top 10. Our top 10 non-horror direct... 
Films direct, horror films directed by non-horror directors. That's going to be a struggle to say. You are taking charge of saying that. Well, yeah. So essentially, it's just films by directors that aren't famous for their horror films, um, but they've made one really, really great horror film. Spoiler alert: The Shining will be on. Exactly. There. We've just discussed one, um, but yeah. So that that would be cool. That'd yes. be good. So yeah, we'll explain better on the podcast. And we'll also be I'll back. Be in charge of saying it. <laughs> we'll also be back a week today, talking about for a final episode of Halloween Classics. We'll be talking about Candyman. Yes. So we'll see you Exciting. on Friday, and also same time, same place next week. Bye. <laughs>